This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's a show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The Black Bear and Mississippi have a storied history together dating back to the days of President Theodore Roosevelt. So today on the show, we welcome Anthony Ballard from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. He's the Black Bear Program Leader, so we'll talk about the Black Bear population, where they're found, and what to do if you ever come face-to-face with one of these mighty creatures. Also, Dr. Major's ready for pet questions. Libby will be on hand to hear your latest encounters with nature. So join our conversation. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, don't worry. It repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. I think you're joining us via Skype and you're out west again on an adventure. Uh, Tell us, what have you been seeing in the last uh, couple of uh, days or weeks? Oh, good morning, Kevin. Uh, We took um, a different route this year coming out since it was so hot in the southeast and thought maybe we wouldn't cross Texas again this year. (laughs) So we went due north and then swung a little west and went to Glacier National Park. So we had a great time up there, and um, it was my first time to see white-winged crossbills, and uh, the more common, the red crossbill, we saw a lot of, and we saw a couple of fairly big herds of bighorn sheep, which I understand is not unusual up there right now. There are a lot of bighorn sheep, or comparatively, I guess, compared to what we've been able to see in the past. But... Um, the most fun, I think, was we um, got to see the biggest moose we've ever seen. Mm. He was just a huge moose and um, in the water eating and um, actually diving, too. They can dive pretty deep. For minute. I mean, uh, they say uh, average moose is like 800 pounds. This guy was maybe over 1,000 pounds and a huge rack great big um, antlers and uh, in the water and he would dive down and be down for uh, you know as long as a couple of minutes I guess and then come up with a great explosion of water and um, uh, hanging out of his mouth this giant wad of leaves you know uh, aquatic vegetation which they like to eat uh, I've read that about half their diet is terrestrial plants and about half is um, water plants. So he was definitely into the water, and um, it was so cool because he'd completely disappear, and the top of the water would go calm and everything, and then he would pop up again. So we stayed a while and watched him, but um, it was really fun. We're far enough away. We needed our binoculars to get you know, really a great look at him. And that was ideal because they can get mad. 
you know, you don't want to make a moose mad, I think, is kind of the story. So uh, we, you know, were very respectful and kept our distance. But they're unusual animals, and it was really exciting to get to see one. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that's really, I didn't know that about the moose, moose, mooses. Um, is, or is the plural of moose, moose or mooses? <laughs> I don't know. Anthony's there. He's Meese, he maybe. Might <laughs> he might know. But um, pretty exciting. Uh, last year, in uh, I guess it was in September, we were in um, Uray, or just outside of Uray in the mountains, Colorado, and mm-hmm. got to see moose there. And they're, they're much more rare there. So the people that we were with were very excited. We saw three together that's during mating season and um we did have to be very careful and keep our distance and cut a wide swath during mating season the males are pretty aggressive and um will fight each other so we want to you know anytime you're in nature of course you want to be respectful of what you see and with those big mammals you want to give them a lot of distance yes all right, let me, here's an email that you might uh, be able to help with. It says, during the recent storms, a medium-sized nest fell out of a tree into our backyard. At first, I thought it was a squirrel's nest or something, but when I tapped it with my foot, about three large bumblebee flew out, so I'm guessing it's a bumblebee's nest. I thought they might leave on their own, but about a week later, I tapped on the nest again, and several more came out, this time a little more aggressively. Don't want to harm the bees, uh, but I can't have the nest just sitting in the middle of my backyard. So far, I've mowed around the nest and left about a five inches all the way around it. The bees don't seem to mind me mowing, but I don't want to get any closer than I already have. Don't want to harm the bees as I know they're extremely important. So two questions. If I decide I can leave the unmowed patch of grass for the remainder of the year, will the bees vacate the nest in the winter so that I can move the nest? Okay. Uh, first off, I guess it really is bumblebees. It's in the ground, right? Usually they're. Did they say? Well, let's say um, he he's in. I think that something fell out of a tree. I think is what he's thinking. Okay. But it was on the ground when he found it. All right. Well, they don't nest in trees. They nest on the ground, and uh, usually it's you know a cavernous kind of a thing. I'll dug in, so there may be more to it to, than what they're seeing. And yes, if you can, you know, if you can leave that area alone and keep children and dogs away from it, you don't, you know, you don't want to, well, adults, you don't want to get stung either, but especially children and dogs, you don't want to get stung. So um, avoid that area. And if you leave it all year, when it gets cold, everything will die except for a queen. And let's see, I'd have to read to be sure with bumblebees, but. Sometimes it's just a, a larval queen that will develop, you know, and hatch out in the spring. I think sometimes it's a an adult queen that'll actually, you know, just she'll hibernate, but she's in her adult form. But I'm not sure what happens with bumblebees. But I know that during the winter, yes, you could um, in some way move or get rid of that that nest. All right, then part two of the question is, if it decide the unmoved patch is too unsightly uh, and then de- decide to need to get rid of them, can he call someone to relocate the nest? Hmm, he could try, yes. He could try the critter guy. Mm-hmm. He could call um, uh, animal damage control or animal control um, wildlife services, I guess is what they're called now, with uh, Chris Godwin, who was on the show, I guess, last 
week before last, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she could probably give him some better tips. Um, would the Would the Mississippi Beekeepers uh, Mississippi Beekeepers Association, or do they just deal with honeybees, or do they? they do you think they, they would do pretty it? much just deal with the honeybees? But okay. some of them might be knowledgeable about other Anthony. Yes, so that would be an option too. You could see if anybody wants to. But I think a a, a bumblebee nest would be very hard to move in July because they're at their maximum strength and it's hot and. Any kind of bee or wasp is more irritable in the hot. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> but it's, so am you know, I. When you, yeah, when you've got 90 degrees, 100 degrees, you don't want to be messed with, I think, no matter what species. So uh, I think it's not going to be easy to move them. All right. So if you can possibly leave them there and stay away from them, that would be the best thing for the bees, obviously. All right, very good. As always, Dr. Troy. Go ahead. Troy, yeah, from practical experience back in the day. uh, The bumblebees will, sometimes they'll find a cavity in an old post or something like that and have a nest, but they tend to have some underground uh, parts of their nest as well, just from past experience. And there's no saying, you know, a bumblebee can't outrun a John Deere tractor if you're not careful. (laughs) <laughs> and, and that's what happens on the farm. A lot of times you'll run over one of those nests, but usually my experience has been that they are, like uh, Libby said, in a cavity or underground some, so, and you may have that upper part. But that's kind of a strange situation. It's a little strange to see them coming out in, into his yard like that. So anyway, All right. that's just my past experience with them. That's Dr. They, they've They've got a good sting, okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. I hope I never have to find that out. So Dr. Major joins us as he does each week from his clinic in Jackson. Dr. Major, looks like we have a cat question on the line, but also a cat email. So let me start with that. It says we have a nine-year-old cat recently has been licking our gas logs and eating the fake cinders that are put under the logs for decoration. The cat eats only dry cat food. I have no idea of the composition of fake cinders and don't mind him eating them if they're harmless. I just can't imagine them being harmless. We've currently blocked access to the fireplace logs and cinders. Thanks in advance for any uh, advice that you can provide. Well, occasionally we'll see a cat or a dog licking uh, concrete, for example, like around the fireplace. Uh, I would say this is not a good thing. I'm not sure of the composition of those Cinders, uh, I guess they're blocks that are in the uh, fireplace for fire effect, but uh, best to keep it blocked off from the cat, okay? It, it would not be a good thing for him to actually take in a lot of that, okay? All right, very good. And as I mentioned, we have another cat question coming via the phone line, so we say good morning to Francis in Natchez. Francis, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. Thank you for having me on. I, I got a serious problem. I got four cats, three male and one female. Uh, I've been so busy lately, uh, the female got pregnant about three weeks ago and had some kittens. How long after a cat gives birth can that cat have more kittens? I saw a male cat trying to mate with her the other day. Okay. I would say that it can be pretty rapid. In fact, it's amazing sometimes we... Uh, have cats that are nursing kittens that have more kittens. But I'd say that you're probably, how old are these kittens now? About three weeks old. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, the gestation period is approximately 60 days, uh, 59, 63 days for a cat. But uh, she could well get pregnant again while she's nursing those kittens, and that's to your question. Okay, thank you. All right, Fran- Francis, thanks for your call. So, Dr. Major, how soon after a cat gives birth can it be, what, it's a female is spayed, I guess? Is that right? Spayed is, spay is correct. If you want to get real technical, ovaria is direct to me, but it's much easier to say spay. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Call fair. Um, I would say that probably the, the, the main thing would be, here, here's one problem with, uh, spaying a cat that's had kittens and still nursing. The mammary glands a lot of times are quite large and you have uh, some difficulty in going in with your incision uh, without uh, disrupting into the milk. So this can be a problem, but uh, I would say as soon as this cat weans these kittens, probably be best to go in and have her spayed. Okay. All right. Joining us uh, for this hour is our guest. He's Anthony Ballard, the Black Bear Program Leader. And so, uh, good morning, Anthony. We always appreciate you being on the show with us. Good morning. Always enjoy it. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to head the Black Bear Program for the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Well, uh, I started with the agency in 2015. Uh, came out of grad school and came back home. I'm from Mississippi, central Mississippi. And um, I, I started my career there as the nuisance species biologist and functioned in that role for um, up until this past November. Um, our, our previous program leader for the Black Bear program um, retired in November. And so I took over those roles uh, in the interim. And then in February, actually was hired on permanently, permanently for that and um, started a transition from there. So tell us a little bit about what the work uh, is done in the Black Bear program. Well, right now, our, our main two things that we're doing, uh, sort of a two-prong approach. Number one, we've got our research going on in partnership with MSU. And then we have our um, sort of educational type program where we're really looking forward to you know getting information out about how to re- resolve conflicts, avoid conflicts with black bears, because you know as these populations grow, as you start seeing bears in new areas, you're going to have to have more and more of the population that that kind of goes through those mental processes and thinks about those type things that have never done it before. So we're trying to kind of get out in front of that um, and and sort of avoid some of those conflicts before they happen. Yeah, I think public education is important because it, it brings to mind that, you know, you see things online, but in uh, Ye- Yellowstone, that these videos of people, you know, coming oh. up to a bison and tapping it on the nose or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. you got to let people know that these uh, these creatures are not to be messed with. That's for yeah. sure. It makes for good YouTube videos, but not so much <laughs> for the people doing it, I guess. <laughs> Uh, one of the popular things uh, about Mississippi and the black bear is the story about Teddy Roosevelt. And I think we have a question about that uh, story coming from Larry in Hazelhurst, who is our next guest on the line. Up, uh, So hang on, Larry, we'll get to you here in just a minute. Um, but um, tell us if you would, uh, Anthony, give us maybe the, the short version of that famous story about Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. So, you know, one, one of the things to remember about Mississippi, you know, we kind of take white-tailed deer and turkey and that kind of thing for granted. But you know, black bear were were just as much of a valuable game resource back in the early 1900s. And so I believe it was 1902 that Teddy Roosevelt, being a big outdoorsman and avid hunter, uh, came down to the what we now know as the South Delta, which is a little north of Vicksburg, and uh, went on that hunt with Holt Collier. He was the guide, um, very renowned uh, guide and bear hunter in the area. And, um, and, of course, as the story goes, for those that haven't heard it, had a bear tied up. 
uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he actually gone out and, and tied the bear up for Teddy Roosevelt to, to ensure success. And um, being the sportsman that, that Roosevelt was, wouldn't take it. And then once um, once that story kind of got out, there was a toy maker in, uh, I believe, New York it was, that, that wanted to sort of commemorize that, that event and um, made the teddy bear. And then, of course, it became wildly popular. And that's how we know the teddy bear. That's, that's how the teddy bear was born today. All right. Uh, Larry is in Hazelhurst, and he will be up next. Um, Larry, good morning. Did we answer your question about the story? Do you have some more details you want to share with us? I'm sorry. I couldn't hear it, uh, but I'm from Louisiana in Hazelhurst because our kids and grandkids are here. We love it. But we always were told that it actually happened in the Tensaw wildlife area and and not in Mississippi. Um, Like that cleared up for me. So... I do know that there are a lot of uh, still a very dense population of bears in Tensaw um, in, the, in the National Wildlife Refuge there. As far as the records I've heard of, it is in it was in Onward, Mississippi. Uh, there's actually the the Onward store right there that has the big placard of you know this is the story of the the uh, teddy bear and everything. So um, you know there as of any historical records like that, there could be you know conflicting records, but as far as I know, it's it was in Onward. Onward, Mississippi. All right. My wife's grandfather uh, lived at Grove State in the Chapelai Swamp and killed 13 bears, helped to wipe out the bear population in the Chapelai Swamp. <laughs> yeah. All Thank right. you very much. All right, Larry, thanks for the call. And I would say we appreciate our neighbors in Louisiana, but stop stealing our stuff now. This is our story. We're going <laughs> to stick with it. <laughs> So um, what about the population of, of the black bear in Mississippi? Is it healthy? It is healthy, and it's, it's growing. Um, you know, that's part of what the research that we're doing right now is we've got basically two parts of the research. So the first is um, putting GPS collars on bears, and mostly in southwest Mississippi. Uh, we've got uh, three traps in Wilkinson and two in Franklin counties. And, um, and then the, the second part of that is the hair snare project. And so essentially we'll put strands of barbed wire around an area roughly the size of a you know, hood of a truck, a kiddie pool, something like that, maybe a little bigger, and put bait in the middle of it. And so when the bears go in to get the bait, it snags a small piece of hair on that barbed wire, and then we take that and, and uh, use it for genetic analysis. And so sort of the, the puzzle that we're trying to put together is, you know, what, what might be some densities um, – some density estimates uh where could these bears be coming from so we know we have several source populations that are outside the state that we're getting bears contributed from and um you know what are the movement patterns and really start to put some of those puzzles together about what the stock is of our bears and uh and what the status is you know kind of what the trajectory is uh, moving forward so does the research also help you get a better understanding of, of like a range for a particular maybe bear or group of bears? Yeah, that'll be another byproduct. So we're, we're collaring males and females, but we're more, we're more specifically looking for males right now. We've got two collared in southwest Mississippi now. And so, um, you know, the, the range, uh, you can get things like habitat preferences, uh, wildlife corridors, how they like to travel, uh, what a home range size would be. Um, and then, of course, that's going to change with, with different sex bears or different age bears, too. And so, like I said, you, but depending on the, the data you're getting, you kind of get to, to peek in the, in the window of all that.
You know, the hair snare thing, I think, is a great idea because it's like uh, to, to a bear, they probably don't even notice it, but it, it gives you good information about the population. Yeah, and it's really amazing the, the information that you can pull from that now. You know, as good as that technology has gotten, you can tease out a lot of good information. And, um, you know, to, to the bear, he just came in for a free donut. But, you know, to us, it's, it's a lot of good, valuable data there. And we've got uh, around 100 set up right now, basically all throughout most of southeast Mississippi. So we chatted a little bit about this before we came on air, but tell us again about how you go ahead and, and, and tag and collar these bears. What's the procedure like? So the process is uh, we have cellular cameras that are on all these traps that, that monitor them, and we, we visit those every day. So, you know, typically we'll, we'll be notified, you know, sometime that night or early that morning that we have a bear that's been trapped. Uh, we'll go in and uh, with a dart gun, and we'll dart the animal, anesthetize it, and then once it's under that anesthesia, We'll take it out, and then all the work starts, right? So you got um, some the physical characteristics we measure. We, we take a lot of different measurements. Um, we take the weight of the animal. We take um, some samples. We also take hair samples from the, the bears that we physically have in hand. Uh, and then we put several markers. So the most obvious there being the GPS collar, which the battery on that lasts uh, two to three years, depending on how you have it programmed. And then we put in uh, ear tags with a, uh, a number on them. And then you have um, your pit tag, which is, uh, Dr. Major, I'm sure, is very familiar. It's, it's the same type of tag that, that, that's used in vet clinics. Uh, people call them microchips, but it's a, about the size of a grain of rice. It's essentially a, a scannable barcode that we can use to identify that individual that's inserted just under the skin uh, between the shoulders. And so once that bear is marked, then we can identify that animal anytime in the future if it's captured again. Right. So if you, if, yeah, as you say, if it's captured again, you can look at the ear tag and then get the information on what particular bear that is. Right. And we also pit tag them as cubs too. And so if we, you know, let's say we pit tagged one as a cub and then we, we captured it at 10 years of age, we could still scan that animal. And uh, unless for some reason it's extremely rare that those ever come out. And so, you know, we could scan that pit tag again and identify the animal. And, and at that point, we didn't have a known age because we, we captured the cub. So it's it's a really good way to kind of catalog individuals and keep track of how many we've handled. So we talked about, you know, the idea of that we like we have well we like to. It's a good idea to observe uh, wildlife from from far away. But when you get to tag them and, and do that, you get to go right up close to them. It, that sounds like that's pretty exciting to be that close to one of these huge animals. It is. It, it's really amazing. And uh, just picking up the different characteristics. I mean, no two bears look the same. And so you just you remember what they look like. You remember those physical characteristics. A lot of times, you know, they have a, a unique chest blaze or. Uh, or scars or you know whatever the case was and uh so it's it's cool to to be that close and to to see those things up close um you know while you're there beside the animal so is the black bear the only kind of bear we have here in mississippi so there's actually technically two subspecies we have the american black bear and the louisiana black bear so the louisiana black bear is is more sort of uh southern part of the state um i'd say a little north of I-20, all the way south, you're looking at mostly Louisiana black bear, and then anywhere north of that, it's American. But uh, for all intents and purposes, as far as management goes, you know, we're, we don't make any kind of distinction. But, you know, as far as genetics and, and that sort of thing, there is um, there is a difference there that's a, a separate subspecies. And I think maybe a lot of people are familiar with grizzly bears. So in terms of maybe size and appearance, that sort of thing, compare and contrast to black bears and grizzly bears. Uh, well, black bears are much smaller, um, but the thing to remember, a lot of people uh, confuse this, is uh, black bears actually do have a, a blonde or a cinnamon phase. It's it's fairly rare, but it is a genetic coat color that can that can turn up every now and then. 
And so, um, you know, as far as distinguishing between the two, um, of course, the size is one, but, you know, a large male, you could be confused there. Uh, the biggest thing is the hump on the back. You know, the grizzlies will have that big prominent hump. Uh, black bears really don't have that as much. And so that's one thing. And then uh, with the track, uh, the, the track appears differently too. And so, uh, but I mean, as far as Mississippi, there's, if you see a bear, it's going to be a black bear. Um, what about any natural predators that bears might have here in Mississippi? Um, honestly, the biggest predators are, I guess, causes of mortality is not necessarily predators would be uh, vehicle collisions and then uh, a lot of times other bears. So, um, you know, the, the younger cubs and, and even adolescent juvenile bears, um, the, the big dominant males in that area can, can potentially kill those cubs if it, if it didn't come from, uh, from his genetics or um or possibly injure and, and cause some mortality to, to some older males you know some some juvenile males and so um those are probably the two biggest sources of mortality for black bears and, and that's kind of like hey this is my area i don't like you young whippersnappers coming in trying to take my place yeah yeah so so once those males establish a home range um you know the so about 18 months uh roughly a year and a half that adult sow she's going to kick those those yearlings out and you know the the females sometimes they stay pretty close by but the males they're going to try to find their own home range that's not been claimed yet um so a lot of times what you can have when that happens is number one you can have bears that show up in odd places like swimming up on the beach in destin florida for instance that, that <laughs> turned up that was just you know crazy for uh for a little while on the internet um you know most of the time when you see those kind of odd situations like how in the world did a bear get there it's usually one of those younger males that's dispersing and trying to you know, find his way in the world, so to speak. Talk, talk to us, if you would, about uh, the black bear's diet. What do they like to eat? Uh, well, just like any other wild animal, it's kind of dependent on the time of year. So, you know, in the early springtime, it's a lot of uh, new vegetation, new growth, uh, even things that may be coming up in food plots, that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, as the as the season progresses, it could go into different grubs or, or uh, insects that become available. Uh, could be carrion on the side of the road, you know, roadkill, that kind of thing. Uh, and then uh, could be also soft mass. So things like berries and, um, you know, persimmons and, and muscadines and all that that are starting to come online here pretty soon. Um, and then, you know, really kind of now until the, uh, until the first part of den season, which, you know, roughly November, they're going to really start to get in more and more of that what we call hyperphagia where they're really just trying to eat as much as they can and put that fat layer on and and then get ready for the sort of the scarce resources there in the wintertime. Kevin Farrell here on Creature Comforts with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest for this hour is Anthony Ballard. He is the Black Bear Program Leader for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Then you can listen to all the MPB locally produced Think Radio programs on your schedule. So, Anthony, we want to talk about uh, avoiding conflict with black bears. But first, uh, tell us a little bit about the type of habitats that these bears like. Well, um, you know, going back to your your story about Teddy Roosevelt and everything, you know, to think about what the South Delta looked like 100 years ago. Um, it was, you know, you didn't have the, the levee there. So there was just vast, vast, uh, areas of bottomland hardwood. 
and that's one of the reasons why you had such a strong bear population there is because that's prefer- the preferred habitat and so uh, especially those old growth um, you know cypress and big oaks and stuff because they as they age they get um, cavities inside and that's where a lot of times the bear used to to go into dens and so um, they're they're very adaptable creatures they're they're omnivorous and so they can make make a living in a lot of different places but uh, you know bottomland hardwoods low-lying areas um, you know a lot of times they use uh, tributaries and streams and stuff to to travel back and forth so uh, that's that's sort of the preferred habitat are they good swimmers yeah they're very good swimmers uh, we've actually had the the first male that we collared back in wilkinson county back in may uh, has actually swam the mississippi river and the atchafalaya river at least once so yeah the the river as a matter of fact a lot of the bears that we have in mississippi swam the river either from arkansas or from louisiana to get here in the first place so it's it's really no problem and you think about how big the mississippi river is and they don't seem to have any aversion to cross it at all well it's good that uh, the the bear tourism industry is is picking up from mississippi <laughs> So uh, we mentioned earlier that, as you said, as as the population increases, um, you know, humans and bears are having to kind of learn to live together. And you want to talk about avoiding conflict with black bears. So what advice do you have for folks about interactions with black bears? Yeah. So, well, first thing, it's always better to be proactive than reactive. Right. So if you if you're in an area where you've heard of bear sightings, you understand that there you know, possibly could be there's bears close by. Uh, it never hurts to start taking these steps, and that way you don't have to make a big adjustment when the time comes. Uh, things like you know taking your garbage out the morning of instead of the night before. You know, uh, if you're like me, you'll just completely forget to take it out anyway. But um, you know, um, barbecue grills, bird feeders, pet food that's left out. You know, those things that worst case scenario without bears, you would have to worry about a raccoon maybe knocking it over, a stray dog or something. Uh, but you know, with bears, you're looking at you know, possibly drawing in an animal that you don't want uh, that close to your house and, and surrounding areas. So um, to, to start to kind of minimize those things, um, being out and available, you know, clean those grills, um, you know, bird feeders. Obviously, you, you want to put those up if, if there's a bear in the area because that's that's very high-calorie food. It's not something that really people would think about. But um, taking some of those steps beforehand and getting those things secured and locked away before before it becomes a problem. Because you, as you mentioned earlier, they're opportunistic eaters, and so if they see a, an easy, quick meal, they're probably going to go for it. Right. Yeah. And you're and you're talking about an animal that's got about seven times uh, the the smell of a dog, hmm. uh, or it's like a seven times better smelling ability than a dog. So you know you expect to to leave a, a barbecue grill or a uh, you know a trash full of food scraps or whatever and then expect them not to find it you know obviously they're going to they're going to fo- they're going to follow that nose to food that's what they're wired to do and so uh, like i said just to, to minimize that as much as possible um it sounds like this would be unfortunate if it is the case but are there instances of people that are provoking bears um no not normally uh, you know typically what you have is um you know like we were talking about in Destin or, or any other high populated areas like that um, you know, people are curious and, and bears evoke a strong emotion one way or the other. There's there's very few people that are neutral on bears. Everybody has a really strong <laughs> opinion one way or the other. And so, um, you know, there's there's a, lot, a big element of curiosity there. So, you know, when people see a bear in a in a city, it shows up in you know downtown Natchez or something, for instance. 
the biggest problem is, you know, people getting around the bear, trying to take pictures, getting too close, that kind of thing. Uh, so the big thing to remember is if you do have a bear that shows up, uh, there was one in Indianola a while back, and, and it just caused a, a big stir in, in the whole town. What you want to do is, is, you know, that bear doesn't want to be there. He probably wandered in on accident or, or following food, and you want to make sure that you stay far enough away, you know, take pictures from a safe distance that you want to, um, but, you know, allow that animal an avenue to get out of that situation. You know, that, that's the biggest thing is you want to allow them the out, if at all possible, for them to get out of that situation and get back to where they belong. Because I would imagine, just like anybody, if it feels trapped, it's going to have a, a different reaction uh, to, to what's it's the stimulation, I guess, or whatever. Yeah, and a lot of times what bears do is, as sort of a natural, um, you know, predator avoidance type tactic is they'll climb a tree. Uh, so, you know, when you have a bear climb a tree and then everybody says, oh, look, there's a bear in the tree, and then everybody stands around the bottom of the tree, <laughs> well, he's going to stand, he's going to stay up there for as long as, as, as he doesn't feel it's safe. And so, you know, like I said, creating that space there and allow him to get down and go do his thing. We'll have more bear talk in just a minute, but we do have a pet question on the line for Dr. Major, and it comes from Gene, who's calling in from Mobile this morning. Good morning. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. All right, Dr. Major. i got a Boston Terrier. I've had him. He's about, he's a puppy. He's about eight, nine years old. But anyway, when he lays down, takes a nap, I'll, sometime in the afternoon, since I'm retired, I lay down and take a nap, and I pull a cough up. He gets up and chair with me. Well, he has some kind of a, I don't know, seizures or what the heck it is. His eyes roll up his head, he shakes, he jerks a little while, carries on. Then he quits, but he don't do it all the time. I'm just curious, just what, what could that be? Is that just natural for those dogs? You think it really is a seizure? That's the thing. Is it really, it's only in your lap? Well, yes, on, on, when, when he will take a nap, of course, I don't know what he's doing when he's not in my lap. <laughs> right, I just didn't know if you saw him have a seizure when he's walking around. or. No, 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 never seen him while he was up going around. It's always when he's laying down. If somebody told me these dogs, and I've had these dogs for 70 years off and on, and I never remember having one, have whatever this thing is. Right. But, but like I said, his, his eyes kind of rolls up, he jerks and shakes and carries on. But a short period of time, it goes away. So I'm just curious if it's just right. some kind of strange phenomenon. I've been trying to call you for two years. But you know. That's okay. Okay, question I have. How long does this last when he does this? Well, 45 seconds, minute. Okay. And when he's over that and you put him down, can he walk okay? Is he normal? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't wake him up. He's asleep. Right, so we 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 dapping. So, uh, yeah, Paul. I know I've never seen him do anything when he was up walking around at all. No. I'll say this: if it, how, and how often is it? I see other things. I mean, well, probably every day or two. Okay, this it's not normal as you can already figure it out. I, if it's not having any reaction when he's down walking around or running or this sort of thing. Be interesting to see if you see in any watching closely if you see any other seizures. I'd get him into your vet and have him checked over. It may be something that triggers when he's asleep, which uh, is <laughs> a little un, little little unusual uh, to see that because usually if a dog is having a seizure, uh, it would be not at that time, not while he's lying down asleep. Well, well I, I, I just use the term seizure because I knew you'd know what I was talking about because I don't know what you call it. <laughs> right. Well, 
My wife gets all upset, and I said, man, I say ain't nothing wrong with him. I shake him. And he's hard to wake up at that time, too. Okay. Uh, I would say this. If they increase in frequency or length, you need to talk to your vet about it and get him in and have him checked. But uh sounds like he's your buddy if y'all are taking naps together. <laughs> nothing nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, that's a good time to take a nap. But uh, anyway, uh, definitely it's a good question, and I can't answer it completely, but it does sound like a seizure of some sort. So if that, as I said, if it gets more frequent or longer, you need to get him in to see your vet for certain. Okay. All right, uh, Gene, thanks for your call. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines. Got some bear questions coming from our buddy Eric in Liberty. Good morning, Eric. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning, sir. Uh, I got uh, two questions. First, I, uh, earlier the guy was talking about uh, uh, male bears attacking hooves. So I, I'd like to know uh, how does a male bear determine whether or not uh, he fathered that cub? And the second question is, what purpose does bears serve anyway? And I hang up and listen. All right, Erica, thanks for the call. So as far as how they know if they're theirs, I would imagine, I don't know if it would be more of a scent thing or if it would be, uh, I'm, question, the answer is I'm really not 100% sure. Um, I do know that they that they will attack cubs that aren't theirs. Uh, it could be that the, the fact that they, you know, obviously they're going to know and remember that sow, you know, and know if, if they had, if, um, if, if he had bred that sow or not. So um, may do a little research and get back to you on that, on, on exactly how that mechanism works. As far as what purpose they serve in the ecosystem, um, you know, what we want to do uh, ideally is we want to have all the native species that's, that's in this area um, to have a good population. We want all the non-native species to, to be non-existent. That's, that's the way that it was originally. Um, so, you know, Black bears were a valuable game species and were a part of this ecosystem here in the southeast, um, you know, in years past. And, you know, and another thing I want to touch on just while I'm on the air and everything, you know, a lot of people think that that the Department of Wildlife has restocked bears or that we've moved bears from a different state into this one uh, or that we're somehow, you know, facilitating more bears in the state. Uh, it's it's nothing of the sort. There was one uh, restocking attempt in I think the 30s, and there was like a handful, maybe three or four bears that attempted, uh, and they that that restocking attempt wasn't even successful. Um, now we've restocked white-tailed deer, we've restocked turkeys. You know, all those programs have been have been very successful. Uh, the the rebound in the number of black bears is completely natural. Uh, the only thing that we're doing is is we're monitoring that species and we're looking at the trajectory of how it's likely to proceed. Um, but you know, like I said, it's a it's a natural native species and um, and it's one that fits well and and doesn't really um, doesn't really cause any harm because, like I said, it's a, it's a native wildlife species here to begin with. And right, so they don't when they swim the Mississippi River, they don't know like, hey, I'm going from Arkansas to Mississippi. They're just doing what they naturally do. That's right, yeah. And and so you know when you have those more dense populations in Tensaw, for instance, or in the the White River region of Arkansas, or in the Mobile Basin, uh, you have a, a high density. So your population is always going to go from high density and then spread out into other habitats that are lower densities, you know, further and further out in a radius. And so that's all they're doing is just natural dispersal. Uh, going out in, into areas that are further away from other bears, establishing their own home range, and then you know making use of that habitat there. 
Joe has been holding on for us. Joe's calling from Hancock County, and he's on the air with us now. Go ahead, Joe. Oh, good morning, Dr. Ballard. Uh, I'm a forester down here in Hancock County for 40-something years. Uh, some of my loggers, several of them, have spotted black bears over the years. I spotted one, uh, observed one about a month ago in west-central Harrison County, moving west up the Little Biloxi River. What is My question is, what is the best way to report well, the, we- uh, the sighting? We've got, uh, so the short answer is on our website. If you go to mdwfp.com, so that's Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, um, and you can go to Wildlife and Hunting, and then you'll find the uh, Black Bear Program page. And if you click on that page, it's you'll see two two boxes. Uh, the first one says Report a Black Bear Sighting. It's the, the very top button up there. And that'll take you to a portal, and you can put in as much information as you want to about where you saw the bear, uh, you can upload pictures if you want to. There's a map there that you can actually mark where the sighting was, uh, and that goes into our database, um, and, and all that information is stored. Then we also have, uh, this past April, we, we made public a, um, a map that is updated in real time, and it tracks the uh, where all the, the sightings have been seen, so it actually marks them on the map, and then uh, keeps track of how many sightings have been reported by year. I got you. Okay. I figured he he was moving westward. Uh, I, I assumed he was coming from Florida Panhandle over toward the Chapalaya. I mean, whatever the bears do. I mean, I didn't ask him. But, um, <laughs> okay, well, I'll check that out. Well, you may try that next time and just see what he says. <laughs> yeah, well, I know sign language, so I won't get too close. <laughs> right. Thanks for your call, Joe. Uh, before we end the hour, Libby, I understand you've got an event that you want to share with us. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to mention that tomorrow is Snake Day, and I know a lot of our listeners like to go, and I thought Kevin might even want to run by there. <laughs> so to, uh, Friday, <coughs> excuse me, July the, the 15th is Snake Day at the museum. It's also World Snake Day, so people are celebrating it all over the world. And uh, let's see the programs about snakes. The you know in the in the theater, the theater programs will happen at eleven. And let's see, in one I believe, and then all day long, all the snakes will be out, and there'll be people there to answer questions. And um, so I think it'll be a lot of fun. And then down on the coast at the Crosby Arboretum, let's talk bats is happening Saturday morning, July the fifteenth. Okay, so Snake Day must be July the 14th. That's right. And then Saturday, July the 15th, will be uh, bats at Crosby Arboretum from 10 to 11 in the morning. And, you know, I'm I'm not overly afraid of snakes, and I credit that to going to a previous snake day at the museum because <clears throat> you're able to see the snakes in a controlled setting. You know, there's no chance of them uh, trying to get to you or whatever. And it's amazing to me, too, that it really demonstrates the the wide variety. They have little tiny snakes all the way up to the big ones. So um, if, if I would recommend uh, snake day to uh, to anybody, it's a great uh, educational thing. And it's, like I say, I think it might help you maybe be not so deathly afraid of snakes because, you know, Anthony, you talked about about bears being yay or nay, but snakes are exactly the same. I don't know anybody that's kind of just neutral about snakes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. So um, when it comes to bears, hibernation is a term we hear a lot. Do the black bears here in Mississippi hibernate? Uh, technically, it's not hibernation. Uh, it's more of a, a lethargy or torpor. 
Um, and, and really you can look at it more, especially in the Southeast where we have more wild, uh, mild winters as uh, I guess more of a power save mode. Um, so you have a, a you know, a suppressed, uh, metabolism, respiratory rate, uh, heart rate, all those things. Uh, so if, if you have all, if you reduce the, the need for that food, then you can rely on those fat reserves for longer time. And so really it's more to, you know, it is to to get away from the cold, but and they've got a big thick layer of fur. It really doesn't bother them that much. It's more to um, to sustain that that wane in, in natural resources, and um, you know, and and with more and more feeders on the landscape now, we actually see that uh, some of the bears, especially the males, um, rarely den at all, or they'll use multiple dens for a short amount of time and then be right back out on the landscape. So. Um, you know, with those those free calories more and more available, it's it's uh, starting to kind of change those habits a little bit too. Got about a minute left. Um, tell us, uh, is there good information about uh, black bear at the MDWFP website? Absolutely. Yeah, we've got uh, life history stuffs so like bear basics. Uh, we've got a link to the Bearwise um, website, bearwise.org, that has a lot of good information about conflict avoidance. Uh, you know, some of the stuff I've talked about today. Um, and then there's again options to report black bears. Um, we haven't updated on the research we're doing right now, but uh, sort of the general research that's been done in the past and stuff, we've got that too. All right. Very good. Uh, just a reminder, if uh, you are out and about and you see something that you don't know what it is, maybe some sort of creature, and you have your smartphone with you, go ahead and try to snap a picture of it because uh, Libby's got a great network of folks that she can send pictures to to try to get information out. So if you want some clarity on what you're seeing out there, Send us a picture to animals at mpbonline.org, and we can't see if we can help you out. Creature Comfort is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio with funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can find it at creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Abram Manny. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, uh, Anthony Ballard, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. Up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.